This is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hey everybody, I'm super excited today to talk to my friend Travis Potter. Travis shares a lot of great insight with me in the organic industry, and he also shares a lot of information on the forefront of what's happening in restaurants these days and the biggest disruptors in that industry as well. We met Travis during the Davos Delta event in May that happened in Memphis during the Memphis and May barbecue event. That's always a great time, great barbecue, great friends. It's a lot of fun. Travis has been in organic farming before it was even called organic farming. He pioneered the first organic beef ranch and artisan meat company. He also founded Tractor Soda in 2015 and currently lives in northwest Idaho with his wife and 11 kids. Yep, that's right, I said 11 kids. Travis is leading the way for agriculture in the current farm-to-fork movement in many companies like Landback, 52 Fresh, and Frontier Protein. With that, I'd like to welcome Travis to the show. Thank you. Glad. Thanks for, for having me. Pleasure having you, Travis. I want to start this podcast off with the, that Nebraska farmer you were telling me about, the one that uses the earth's heat to grow the oranges in the wintertime up in Nebraska. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You know, it was, uh, it, for a long time, we, I grew up and we used to raise citrus and we had other, other products that we had when, when we were in California. And, uh, and it was, you kind of get used to really good quality fruit and produce. And uh, then after being in North Idaho, where obviously you don't get fresh oranges or fresh hardly anything for most of the year, it makes you think. So as I, as I was researching a better way to grow fruit as one of our, one of our other projects for the kids, I, I uh, came across this uh, Russ Finch. Uh, Russ Finch is a—he's—I uh, uh, think he's 85. He's a—he uh, was a mailman that kind of grew up as a farm kid, retired, and he wanted to figure out a way—a better way to do energy for his house. So he figured out that doing a passive solar uh, uh, greenhouse next to his house would heat his house. And then he figured out that—and this is in the 80s—that uh, he could actually grow oranges and roses and. He had year-round supply of, of, uh, of these things, and how he did it was he was doing geothermal. So what he did is he took a he made he, he figured out over 30 some years uh, what it would take to make a greenhouse produce, and he has oranges that have been produced for 20 some years, uh, and they produce way more and bigger oranges in Nebraska when it's snowing than you would get even in Florida or California. And it was really interesting. They don't have the bugs or the pests. And so that, that got us on a bit of a kick of understanding more about it. So we went out and visited Russ and saw his operation. And he's got, I think, 48 or so greenhouses, these geothermal greenhouses all over the country. And what he does is he has, a, he runs, he has these greenhouses that produce a lot of dollars per tree. And he's getting a tier of $400 per, you know, per spot for each tree of produce, um, which is really interesting compared to, like, corn or soybeans. And, uh, and he, how he's doing it is he's running pipes under the ground at eight foot deep, and then uh, then he, he dropped the greenhouse four foot in the in the, in the middle to use the, the earth's heat, which is always between 45 and 55 degrees uh, when you get down past the freezing line. And so when it's 20 degrees below zero, he's still in the 40s and, and not having fr- uh, frozen produce, and and he's cranking out some amazing stuff. So it was just a, it was really an amazing experience to see that guy and to see his operation and see what he's doing and he's still like like a you know like a 30 year old he's just so excited and motivated it's it was amazing yeah i actually have a video of him up on my farm tank uh website if any of you guys want to check it out what how much was he getting a pound of oranges up there for i think he was getting like 350 or 375 and uh after when i found out he was getting that much and i, I was chewing on it i'm like you know, one of the things that I've noticed growing up was really good avocados. And uh, and out here, like, they're either black or and mushy and nasty or they're green and hard as a rock and maybe – and they're small. And you're basically paying for a seed. And I was doing the math on it. I was like, we're, we're paying, like, 12 bucks a pound for really horrible avocados. Like, that would make something interesting. And that was – when we were looking at, you know, if you're going to grow a crop, 
what kind of crop would you grow? It wasn't about uh, you know importing something from all over the world, like a banana. Or and I looked at that. I'm like, well, what what can we grow? So Florida 52 Fresh is wrapped around his, what he's been doing, and uh, and we're going to carry on some of that legacy and, and 52 Fresh is part of what we're working on. Let's talk a little bit about your background in agriculture. Now, let's just start with how you got started working in the industry. Yeah, so I, I grew up ranch kid, uh, southern Sierras. It's kind of like Wyoming in the middle of California. Um, everything's California, palm trees and city, but our, our closest gas station was 45 minutes away, and uh, school was, was almost an hour on the bus. You know, it was a bit of a jaunt. We raised cattle. We had uh, over 4,000 acres. We leased 60,000 acres. We, uh, we ran cattle, sheep, hogs. We tried to do whatever we could to make a living, but it was always it came back to the same thing. Like, we lived in a single-wide mobile home. And we were trying to figure out how to afford to feed ourselves when we were trying to pay, you know, pay to keep the ranch going, and something wasn't just, wasn't working. So I was kind of chewing on, you know, I want to be an ag, and, and uh, the easiest way to do it, and I was kind of chewing on it was, well, how do you sell for more? Like you could sell show animals, which is kind of fun, but but it's limited. But how do you really, like, from a sustainability, this is way before sustainability was cool, how do we produce more food, more profit, uh, with the land that we have, and then that kind of got me thinking as a teenager, like, you know, what, am, what are we going to do for the future? And that's where I started stewing on, like, what's the best way to, to, to make a profit of this thing? And I, we'd go to the store and see lamb chops for 15 bucks a pound, and we were selling our lambs for 40, 40 cents a pound. I'm like, I know that there's a yield issue, but, man, that's a big gap. So we wanted to figure out that part. So that was the beginning of, of how we got started in agriculture. We really just wanted to figure out how to how to be more of a direct marketer of our own products mixed with uh, raising a premium product. And, and that was kind of the niche is we had to figure that out. And that was, that was the start of it. You want me to go further into uh, how we got there? Sure. So after that, we, uh, I, I worked for some great ranches. We, uh, we went all over the country. I couldn't really find a school that I wanted to go to that was, uh, you know, that, that did a good job at teaching you agriculture, uh, teaching you processing, teaching you how to sell it, and uh, and then teaching you about how to make different products from that product as an added value. There really wasn't an option, especially you know 25 years ago. And uh, so as we looked at it, I decided I want to work for some of the best ranches in the country, and and so uh, we did. Uh, went all over the country, worked for different ranches and and uh, different operations from uh, raising sheep and cattle to hogs in Georgia. I just really wanted to work. You know, kind of grassroots and learn. I'm, I'm a hands-on guy, so it was a lot easier to learn by using my hands than it was to try to try to read up on and figure it out because there really hadn't been anybody that did it. Uh, really, I wanted to decommoditize what we were doing, and so uh, so I went to. A, at, by the time I learned as much as I could that I felt comfortable with, I ended up going to a meat college in Minnesota. It's it's gone now, but it was a great a great opportunity to learn everything from harvesting buffalo to making added value sausages and a little bit of everything. And, uh, and that was kind of how we got up to our next deal was is we had family members that all of a sudden got sick. We lost what would have been our third kid and mother-in-law got breast cancer, father-in-law, uh, he, he had a brain tumor and her mom had diabetes and, and we're farmers. We, you know, they spray these other things and we thought maybe that, that could have caused some of it. We, but also we just didn't eat the best. So we thought, well, maybe if we can do something with the food, we can do something better. At the same time, we were like, you know, there's probably a market in that. Uh, let's figure that out. So we ended up coming back to California, pioneered the first organic beef ranch, and and then uh, and uh, that was in 2000. So that was really uh, a lot of fun to get that up and going and, and, and to do something that nobody else had done. That's part of that failing forward, like we're going to try it, whether it works or not, like at least we'll learn from it. And uh, and so we, we were making all kinds of different added value products from our meats and had to because it was easy to sell the, the middle stuff like ribeyes and yorks or fillets, but Selling the whole animal was, was difficult, and that's how we've you know, evolved into, into dairy and then later on into beverages and, and making all kinds of different added value products and, and then selling our products all over the world. It's a lot of fun. And then, then it gets back to the agriculture side, and that's where we're working on now too. So you pioneered the first organic beef uh, and artisan meat company. You came up with that idea because people were getting sick, you said? Yeah, we were looking at it. So we, as we were, we were working on these ranches. It was normal to, and to give impl- implants and spray and do different things. And and so we looked at it like a lot of our, a lot of my farmer buddies had had different problems, and we're like, well, maybe it's caused from that. We're, we don't know, but uh, but there's got to be an opportunity in doing a cleaner option. And kind of how we grew up in the ranches on the middle of nowhere, like everything was organic. We didn't use any pesticides, or herbicides, or chemical fertilizers. Um, and then there were a couple of guys that were. That I talked to that were, were toying around with new 
different ideas, but it was really a new market at that point. Now it's available, you know, every every pretty much every grocery store in the country and and every place in the world. There's there's organic options now, and organic is actually a, a standard. Back in, in 2000, there wasn't a standard for organic beef. That was uh, before there was a standard. So it was that was really what got us going as a niche, but also, you know, if we can figure out a way to to make a cleaner environment for where we're raising our kids and and raising our critters, maybe it would affect us in a better way long term. And it's, so far, it's been good. Tell me a little bit about the yogurt business you did. You could also tell us some of the best things you learned from doing the business. Yeah, so part of the so we the dairy side we have we had done a with meats and cheeses, but we also had had different dairy products. We made about two hundred different types of added value. Uh, organic dairy products, which is also part of the fun of you know learning how to make organic products when they weren't uh, going to the shelf and figuring it out. But what the niche we ended up working on, and and we still do that now, is is a, a frozen yogurt soft serve business. And you know, Pinkberry went crazy in in uh, 07 and 08, and the frozen yogurt market went went nuts, and everybody got into it. Well, we saw an opportunity because of those guys as an organic option. And we expanded that and, and grew it, and it's, it was good. One of the things we learned, though, was is you can't just sell one type of yogurt or even four. Uh, in order to for that market, you've got to have, like, 80 options. So that's where it got, it got fun, and my wife and kids got involved, and, and we were able to look at all the different flavors we could create and what's on trend. And it wasn't just a me-too product. Like, you had to be better, have more fun, do different things, and, and that expanded later on to what we're doing now, uh, also more on the beverage side as well. What were some of your favorite flavors in the yogurt that you guys made? Man, that's hard. You know, it's kind of like what, what's your favorite kid? You know, it's, uh, you can't you can't pick just one. Like different times of the day, you like different types. Um, we had funky ones. They would they were kind of like would freak you out, like sweet wasabi. But we also had the core, you know, really good chocolate and vanilla and and uh, and our tart. And then we did we did we 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 still have them too. But we have uh, our salted caramel and. Uh, Pink cupcake and those type flavors are definitely ones that people went crazy for. And, and if you're looking for decadent, we had that. And then if you want tart, we had both. We had, we did funky ones too, like goat ones, and we just had a lot of fun. All kinds of different crazy flavors. The nice thing about the the frozen yogurt market is each each shop had about 16 different flavors. That market's changed a lot now. Three years from now, it'll come back. But it's a you know it's a kind of a it's a bit of a cycle business, and it's also a seasonal business. So what I what I probably learned the most on the frozen yogurt world, going back to that question was, is uh, it's very seasonal. Don't rely on something seasonal unless you plan for it and you know exactly what you're doing and when to make products, when not to. Otherwise, you're sitting on a lot of inventory and, and your, your costs end up being really high, especially if you're in food service. That's, it'll kill you because there's not enough margin in food service for that. I agree with you. Seems like you've been in the organic market forever. Um, could you tell me how you see the organic market affecting agriculture as a whole moving forward in the future? But it's, de- it's definitely pushing uh, the organic movement. It gets kind of the cities push it, and, and then before too long, it's everywhere. Uh, but there's a premium in it, and if, if you're a farmer and you could produce it organically versus conventional and you make more money doing it organic, then why wouldn't you, right? So the part of that is, and it's happened in rice, and it's happened in a couple other products where – it was. It, it actually makes more money to do it organically, and but eventually, it's like any other market it becomes commoditized, and then you're fighting for it. So really, what it comes back to, and this is one, what goes back to our land back, is coming up with bioag solutions that uh, organic is a standard, and you can produce still more yield than you could even with commodity products. And that's where it's a little bit difficult when you're really weighing in on on a. You know, if you're a farmer and you're trying to figure out what you're going to grow for the future, and if you have to wait three years in order to grow a crop, it's going to make you more money. Like, you've got to lose money on that. Well, some of the solutions that we're coming up with with our other company is it fixes those uh, out of the gate so you're getting more yield. Uh, organic is, as if, if you look at it from a global perspective, uh, China and, and, and uh, Korea and other countries are demanding it. And they're cleaning it up, and you wouldn't think China and organic, but it is. It's happening, and uh, and so there's there's a big movement on uh, not just doing the same thing that dad and granddad did, but doing what the market's forcing you to do, and then also getting ahead of that and doing doing it with uh, or making more profits at it and doing it right and having fun doing it, and then having products that you can sell from it. So if it's a commodity product, and there's going to be a lot of organic commodity products there are now, but then there's also our you know, how you sell it. It, it all affects what you do and how you do it. 
What do you think stopping farmers from growing organics now in the U.S. if there's so much for a premium for it? Well, it depends on the, on what the product is. I think a lot of people are going organic. Uh, the, there are different things you have to do in order to become organic, and a lot of farmers don't want to do it, and that's the paperwork side. Uh, but you know, and traceability. But with blockchain and everything else that's happening, no matter what, traceability is coming. It's going to happen. It's a. Uh, and then if so, if you're organic and you're traceable and you can prove what you do, then it's going to be a lot easier for the future. And uh, but what it comes back to is, is there's got to be solutions that you can get the yield that you normally get with with an organic product. It's coming. It's really close. We're seeing yields already with some of our products that we're that we're playing with that are higher than our conventional yields, um, and they're organic. And the input cost was less, and the output was more. So, if we can get to that point, then why wouldn't everybody go to an organic option? You've done work with Whole Foods in the past, haven't you? Yeah, we sell the Whole Foods now. Uh, they've got our products in in uh, several different states. Um, we we sell to we sell to all kinds of people. We sold to Trader Joe's. We we sell to Costco. We we sell to, to lots of restaurants um, all over the world. That's our our main business now. What's the process like getting your food or your product into the Whole Foods market? Uh, the Whole Food market is changing. Uh, Amazon bought it, so it's uh, it's no longer a regional play. It used to be, uh, you know, say you're at a farmer's market and you're selling a niche product and. And, uh, and then you've got a buyer that happens to be there, and then you end up having a conversation with them, and, and then you go through their process in order to be certified to, to be able, or verified to be able to sell to them. And then they would try it regionally if it worked, and you were able to sell it and do well and get it there, then it was fine. And then it was, well, you had to use their distributor, and then you got that going, and then later on you expanded to a different region, and then you went national. Well, now it's a, it's a little different animal. It's more of a... It's going to be one buying office, and it's going to be more of a, a large-scale deal. It's harder for niche guys uh, to be going that, into that market in particular. Uh, that, that, that's about to change quite a bit over the next five years. Seems that way to me. We uh, go in there some, and they got stuff changing up all the time. Right now, we just got a new store in Kansas City, and it's got some uh, pretty wild stuff in there. So you're the founder of Tractor Soda. How, just tell me how you got started with this and what really inspired you to start this business. Well, it, was, it was kind of it's kind of a fun story. So we had a uh, we had a rap, rapper guy, which I'll, I'll name, name an anonymous, but uh, they wanted to open up an organic burger chain, and uh, and it was at a, it was about eight years ago or so, and and my. My one partner said, hey, uh, we got this guy that, you know, he's, you're, he knows that you've been in the organic business, the food business, and needs some help with it. So uh, can you come down and figure it out? And so I came from Pacific Northwest down and visited him in L.A. And, and uh, they're like, we want to figure out how to make uh, make organic burgers for everybody. And so it was kind of uh, like, hey, that's, you know, the timing's probably there. Let me, let's figure it out. And yeah, if there's enough organic beef, yeah, there's enough organic cheese, you can make the bread, you're good. Uh, but it came back to, well, in the restaurant industry, if you don't have a beverage that makes you money, you're not in the restaurant industry. Um, the, usually the protein or the meal pays for employees and rent and your cost of being in business, but that beverage is really your profit center. So if you go to any fast food place, they're, they're, they want you to buy that drink no matter what. And as a, as a family where we quit drinking sodas back in 98, and that was one of our like, hey, let's, let's try to clean up our, our habits. We hadn't even had any forever, and then so as I was looking at it, like, well, studying it, I just came back to them and said, you know, I can't help you. You're not going to be able to do this. It's not sustainable. You're not going to make any money. Like, you can do it, but you're just going to burn, you know, hundred million bucks. And uh, like, well, how do we how do we do that? So that was the beginning of figuring out how to do a certified organic beverage option uh, in as a fountain product. And so we, it was about seven years ago or so, we started working on um, building Tractor Soda. And we, we went through all kinds of brand stuff, and that was part of the fun of it, too. Went from going through trademark stuff and what we can do and what we couldn't do and what made sense and what sounded good and all those things you do from a brand perspective and started building it out. And then they ended up not opening up their organic chain, which was which was fine. We it was fun to to learn from it. What we realized was is not only do burger chains need it, but an Asian restaurant might need it, or a Mexican place, or you know your your local coffee shop, or or a movie theater, or kids' school. Like all of a sudden we're like, whoa, this is a huge market. Like for what we do, there's you think about it, you could sell filet mignon to 
some people at the farmer's market for 20, 30 bucks a pound, and it's fun. They come once a, once a month, and, you know, they enjoyed it. It was great. They eat your ground beef, whatever. On a daily basis, you know, maybe they buy yogurt from you, but people drink all day long. So that, that was kind of like an interesting kind of eye-opener. We knew that it was difficult once you're on the shelf. It's expensive to be on the shelf and to represent your product on the shelf and, and to have a ready-to-drink product is kind of difficult. But we looked at it kind of like we did the frozen yogurt business, and we're like, well, you know, this is a, an interesting time, an opportunity. Uh, we can actually produce something in a concentrate, like a soda syrup, for a machine that actually makes money for the end user, like five times the money, and it, it uh, we might even make some money at this thing. So that was part of our learning, like what we could do and couldn't do. So we... I, I developed all the flavor profiles uh, with my family, and then and then we ended up expanding from that, and then partnered up with a with an amazing company that helps us so that we can make it in plants all over the, all over the world and grow it. And then uh, then later on we expanded into teas and frescoes and haymakers, which are our drinking vinegars. And now we have a whole bit, uh, tractor beverage solution, not just soda. Soda is kind of a four-letter word, so we've we've kind of taken that out of our language, but we're now focused on food service only we don't do uh, we don't do any uh ready to drink cans or bottles it takes a whole truckload of cans or bottles to make the same amount of product as you can make off a pallet and you make more money off the pallet than you do the truckload so it's not like a greeny thing it's just a flat out like it just made more sense for us to do that so that's our that's kind of how we got to where we're at with tractor and now we're in 47 some states and going to five countries and it's a lot of fun what companies hold tractor so that you're you got panera bread and stuff right no, uh, uh, we don't have Panera, although they, we we appreciate what they're doing and have that conversations with them. They're, uh, we we have uh, we have Zoe's, which is out of out of Dallas. It's a Mediterranean concept. We worked with them. Uh, we've got Pokey Works, which is a, a fish place. Uh, we've got we, there is an organic burger chain called Nix that's uh, out of the Chicago area that's growing quickly. There's an organic Coop, which is a, a chicken sandwich concept. Um, then we have just. Lots of independents and small chains all over the country, and, and now like Leon from the UK that are they're growing our, with our products, and we're in small towns like in Des Moines and in Iowa City to to New York City and Hollywood, and it's kind of interesting because we sell about as much we in one store in Iowa that we do in downtown Hollywood. It, you would think you know more more people, more volume, but the reality is is the Midwest folks like to drink soda. And if you have a cleaner, better option that it tastes good, tastes better than some of the stuff they're used to, then they'll drink it. And so that was kind of fun for us is it's not that we didn't make a product just for like people that live in Berkeley that need to, you know, they want to know what everything that's in it and they want to you know, beat you up on everything. It's more like we made a product that tastes good. Yes, we know everything that's in it. And, uh, and we've created everything from scratch. We know what it is, but we also made it so that Everybody and their brother likes the taste of it, and it'll be at your local convenience store here pretty quick, and it's in pretty much all the places you go up to eat out uh, over the next couple of years. Tell me this. What's the best piece of advice you could give a farmer like yourself who's trying to start an organic company like Tractor Soda? The biggest thing is is know your market first. Uh, be able to sell a product that you can actually produce. I've got a lot of farmer friends that are genius that can grow all kinds of amazing crops and tons of it. But if you get over your heels and you grow something that you, you don't have processing for, uh, you don't have any distribution for, and you don't have any sales for, then you're, you're just having fun growing something that you're going to have a boatload of it sitting in a warehouse somewhere. That's a difficult part. And then also be able to do added value products that's better than everybody else, quicker than everybody else. So if you're, you know, depending on what you're doing, whether it's a commodity-type product or an ancient grain type product or or it's a protein product like make sure you understand your market and uh, a good opportunity to sell in that market and then timing is so critical i i, I would have to say that it, not try to be cocky or arrogant but i've i've, I've looked out five ten fifteen years um in the past and i was looking back at when we were doing things and we were five ten fifteen years ahead of ourselves on, on certain things that are really expensive failures, which we call failing forward, but uh, but at the same time, they're, we learn from it, but then we then there are other people doing the same exact thing as what we were doing five years later, and they're killing it, and their companies are worth a, a ton of money. Um, and then the other part is, is, do you want a family business, or do you want to have partners? Uh, do you want to have venture capital that's part of that deal? Now, that's another part of what you get into, because 
you might be a farmer and have assets, but you'll and you'll run out of assets long term if you don't have a plan and you don't have the capital to grow it. You can you could do something niche and small and make make good money at it. You could be ahead of the curve on a lot of things, but there's basically it comes down to some basic fundamentals. Can you make it where the end user is really happy with it? Can you make it in the right time of the era when it needs to be produced, and whether it's the financial cycle and you're selling fast food stuff when the economy's down, or it's a high-end steak when you're selling when it's up. Like, understand that cycle. That's super important. And then capital, and then team. So if you're uh, those four fundamentals, I guess, are the main core ones. But your team will make everything. If your culture is funky, you have people that are controlling it. You have no more access to what you're doing. All that stuff gets ugly and funky long term. So you got to build it really well. So think of it like your crops or like anything, like your house. Like you don't want to have a faulty foundation and build a sweet looking house and the whole sucker falls down long term. And then make sure that your wife is happy with it. Because <laughs> if you do something that, that she's mad about, you may not have a wife forever. So uh, that would be another thing. Like don't let it take all your time, but be willing to, to work your tail off at it for a while until it, it gets up and going and you can afford to hire the right people at the right time. I guess that goes back to the team, too. Like Hire people when you can afford them. Don't hire them because your money guys said you need to hire them way, way ahead of time. It's easy to hire people, have them sit around doing nothing for a couple of years until you actually make money. It's better to like hustle as long as you possibly can and then hire when you have to, not because somebody told you you need to in order to get the capital you need because that, that money will be gone quicker than, than if you do it the other way. I think that's some good advice for running any business. Tell me a little bit about Frontier Protein, though, and some of your insight on what's going on in this land market. Yeah, so Frontier Protein, you know, it's, as we uh, as we looked at this long time long time ago, it was really what you know, how can we live on a farm and raise our kids that way? Now I'm I'm thinking, how do my kids? Uh, what are they going to be doing for the future? And you know, knowing where we've been and what we've been doing, I, I want to really look at that hard. So uh, Frontier Protein is really going to be, or is. Uh, taking the very best genetics from all around the globe of different critters that make sense for making into protein and uh, and focusing heavily on that and then expanding from that long term. The one that we've always been passionate about and been in the middle of since I was since I was born is sheep and lamb. And uh, the interesting thing about, about the lamb industry is people are eating more lamb than ever in the U.S., but we still only eat about three-quarters of a pound a year on average where in China, I think it's between 17 and 19 pounds a year that they eat in China. So as China population grows, the, the lamb consumption there gets bigger and takes away a lot of our opportunity. Uh, mixed with the, the kind of the interesting dynamic in the U.S. is uh, about 100 years ago, we had over 58 million head of sheep in the United States that were in pretty much every state and uh, plenty of sheep men that had them. And then we had something happen in World War II where they ate a bunch of nasty mutton, old sheep, and... At that point, they decided we don't want to have any more uh, lamb uh, at our table. So uh, consumption of lamb went way down. So our great-grandfathers basically said, I'm not going to eat that stuff. And when it smelled, it reminded them of when they were in the military and they ate some nasty mutton, and it caused a a bit of a hiccup in in, uh, lamb consumption in this country. Now we're at at around 5 million heads, so 58 million down to 5 million, and the average sheep man is 70 years old in the United States right now. So that means that they're about to get out, or they're, or, or maybe they have a generation that would take over, but most of the generations aren't taking over. And I'm not talking about like a backyard or like 12, 15 sheep. I'm talking about two, three, 5,000 head bass sheepmen uh, to feedlot guys in the Midwest uh, to, you know, to Texas guys. Like the sheep industry is pretty significant. Well, part of the going down in numbers is uh, New Zealand and Australia have done a really good job of producing a lot of lamb which has been great. We've been able to get lamb uh, extra for our dinner table for those who eat lamb, but really we don't have enough in our country to produce enough. Well, New Zealand and Australian lamb is going to be going to India and China. Indians don't typically eat beef, as most people know, uh, or pork. They eat lots of lamb. And uh, as their population is looking at being more than China by 2025, their land and their, their cash is going up. They're expanding quickly on their lamb consumption. Right now, we're in a major deficiency in lamb. Not a little bit, like millions and millions of head extra lamb we need to produce. So we either do it by raising more animals or we do it by raising really efficient animals. 
one thing we haven't done in the sheep industry that we've done in, say, poultry or, or pork is we are, we've gotten really good at raising poultry and pork really quickly, um, whether it's conventional, clean, natural, whatever you want to say it, we can grow pigs super fast and get a lot of protein quickly and chicken. We have not done that with lamb. If anything, we're, you know, we're, we're maybe behind what we were in, in 1985 and in, in, uh, really focused on that. So one of Frontier Protein's major focuses is around that, bringing the best genetics from around the globe uh, and then really focusing on bringing those genetics so we're, where we can produce a super high-quality lamb in three months ready to go instead of a year uh, with more meat on it with less feed and less you know less uh, warmer antibiotics anything you might have to give a sheep to keep it around during that time as well and that's a major focus along with more prolificity and 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 just in general make it a profitable and that's the other part is, is a lot of sheepmen got out of it because they just didn't make enough money at it or there wasn't enough demand well now, as we, as we deal with Mediterranean concepts and, and, uh, and restaurants in general, even Arby's has lamb in, in their, their menu now. People are eating lamb again, and uh, there's not enough of it in general for the population. So that, that's one of our major focuses, and, and that would be a good one for anybody to get into, really, and their kids over the next 20 years until it, until it gets saturated, which I don't think it will. And then uh, we also looked at other options. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Carter had kind of pushed me and said, now, what's protein going to look like? Is it going to be insects? Is it going to be, uh, you know, is it going to be peas, lentils? Uh, what is it? What's protein really look like? And I don't know about you, but I like, I like sinking my, my teeth into, into some meat, uh, beef, lamb, pork, whatever. I, I like it all. Most Americans do. And I was at a restaurant conference last or about two weeks ago, and they said that uh, everybody's going to these vegan old burgers uh, that are, but in general. Americans ate 225 pounds of meat last year. So we've eaten more meat than ever per capita than we have ever done that we know of per capita, but you know, people are still looking at alternative proteins. Well, they're looking at alternative proteins, but there's still a lot of meat consumption, and that's where it comes back to there's going to be more and more meat consumption, and it's going to be alternative, and what's that going to look like? So we were kind of stewing on it, studying about it, and we looked at the alternatives, which are kind of the interesting sides of it kind of stewing on looking back further, like who decided that we needed to raise chickens and really focus on those in the 50s so that we have a much more efficient, high-quality, fast-growing chicken that's meaty now, um, when really it takes about, you, maybe you get two genetic cycles per year to raise a chicken and make their genetics better. Uh, with, a, with a sheep, it's at least a, you know, a two-year process to get another set of genetics really growing. With beef cattle, it's like five years to get another set of genetics. And then you look at something like quail. They take in less feed, produce more, more eggs and meat than chickens do, but they reproduce every 45 days. So a baby has a baby in 45 days. So, the, so we were like, well, I wonder if you just focused on that for 10 years, if you can get a quail the size of a turkey. Bet you could. And that's where it comes back to, like, you know, who eats quail? Well, people, if you give them the opportunity, they're going to eat it, especially if it's unique and interesting. And then we looked at, you know, rabbit and, uh, you know, yields and how that works. And if they're super labor intensive, I don't know if it's, if it's a, a great niche for everybody, but that's another alternative for, say, China. And, and even here, people want to try different products in the future. And then we, we looked at all, from venison to all the different unique ones because we can raise beef and pork and, and uh, chicken really well in this country. But are there things that we put less feed into? I'm talking, you know, dry matter grain, whatever it is, like we, we can get really good at, at, uh, at feeding something high quality feed. And then we have a lot of people complaining like, well, we should be eating that as a vegetarian burger instead. But the reality is, is it, it does come back to, well, you can raise sheep and cattle, goats um, on forage that you can't raise anything else on. And that's uh, in the mountains and the rangeland. You know, I, I've gone cross country probably 15 times in the past three years and, and everybody says we don't have enough land. And we, we do have greenhouse stuff that we're doing, but the reality is we have way more land and way more opportunity to grow more feed than ever before. And uh, that should be more of a focus than anything. Like we can grow really quality protein on a, on a big level in this country if we just focused on it. And then, then we could also market interesting things like quail that reproduce quickly. And, and you know, one, I think one, we, we did the math on it. One female quail can have 5 million offspring in five years if you really look at how the numbers crunch. So it's uh, a lot of fun to see 
what what the the future of protein is going to look like and and what our future protein is is working towards. I was going to ask you about the quail deal, but you already touched on it. I know that's a big thing you know a lot about. But let's take a step away from talking about agriculture for a little bit. I like to step back from people's work in my podcast and learn a little bit more about them. So. Tell me about your 11 kids and your wife you've been telling me about. I know they're all coming down for our conference in November. Seems like you guys are uh, really close. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's uh, A lot of people say, well, what, what possessed you to have 11 kids? And is it, is it the same wife? And uh, yes, it's the same wife. And, and uh, when we first were dating, our ranch kids were like, I'm like, how many kids do you want? And she's like, I don't know how many you want. I'm like, how about 11? And, she, and she's like, that sounds good. That's at 11. So we're like, well, we're goal-oriented. We hit our 11. She said, but here's the deal. I don't want to have anyone on having grandkids. So let's have our 11, and then when we start having grandkids. So now we have 11 amazing children. Uh, we have six daughters and five boys, and we have two grandkids. So our oldest, Travis Jr., had a, had a baby this, this summer, and then Cheyenne also had a baby. So uh, we, we're you know, hugely blessed. Uh, my wife is amazing. As you can imagine, she's She's really the core of everything that we're doing. Everybody says, you know, that uh, there's all these achievements or things that we've done that are spectacular, and, and everybody gets accolades. But I don't care what man it is. If you've got a good, solid wife behind you, that's that's really why you were able to get done what you got done. Because uh, the opposite is no fun. I hear you there. Tell me a little bit about your son's barbecue business. I know we talked about it some, and I was thinking about yeah. it myself. So uh, a couple years ago. Now, being in the South and then coming up here, one of the things you miss is good barbecue. And that's kind of like sweet tea. Like, if you grew up on sweet tea and then you came to the North, like, you've got to have good sweet tea and nobody really knows how to make it. So, uh, barbecue is the same way. And you can be picky, whether it's Kansas City, you know, Texas brisket, um, you know, Memphis or Georgia, whatever it is. Uh, all the different types of, of uh, barbecue there is, it's a lot of fun. And uh, Santa Maria style, like where we grew up, a lot of that is a lot of fun, but it's we, when we came up here, Junior said, and you know, we had meat shops. We we made like 80 types of sausage. And when he was a little kid, he's a uh, he's still a little kid as far as I'm concerned. But when he was a little kid, eight years old, he was making sausage with me. And and I said, hey, so what kind of sausage is your favorite? And he said, I'm sick of making sausage. Uh, I want to make barbecue sauce. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, all right, go online and figure it out. So he whipped up some barbecue sauce, and it was awesome. And we're like, whoa, this is pretty good. And he said, yeah, I'm gonna be in barbecue when I grow up. And I'm like. Okay, great. So uh, he he raised his own pigs and he got in barbecue and and he was uh and he he wanted to figure out how to make it. He wanted it to have that southern feel and and country feel and and then make it super tasty. But so we went across country, stopped off at fifty plus barbecue places. I was sick of barbecue. I can tell you that. Um, by the time we went, but we went pretty much every state. Got to the Mason Dixon line. It got worse and worse. And then we figured out what he liked the best. He he researched it and really got into it. And uh, as a teenager, and then he raised his own hogs and wanted to figure out, you know, how to be vertical eventually. But he really wanted to figure out just how to run a restaurant. So he uh, he's had his restaurant for a little over two years, been cranking at it, you know, 70 hours a week, 58 hours a week. One of the things that I told him was, is whatever you're doing, make sure that if you weren't there, it would do well. Uh, and also your siblings don't necessarily have to be there. So do something that that you can do that with. So he kind of thought about that after a couple of years of, and then we took off and he realized like he relied on his family quite a bit to make it run. He said, you know, I, I, yeah, I think I'm at that point where I want to focus more on our, our ag stuff and some of the other projects we're doing than barbecue is fun, but seven or eight hours a week. And, and that really comes back to, it's really hard to make barbecue in a big plant and then ship it to a bunch of locations. And that was the other thing he wanted to do was he wanted to manage it on a bigger level. And he realized that at some point, it's uh you can you can be a regional barbecue chain and do really well as long as you have a lot of people that are in love with it and really paying attention to uh, your time and temperature and taste and everything else. But what it came back to was is to do it in a plant style like Mama's mashed potatoes need to be made every day and uh, Granny's beans and everything that he was doing. He realized that, that needs to be somebody that wants to own a local deal. So he he recently sold it to a guy that uh, loves it and is passionate about barbecue and wants to keep it at a at that smaller level and that's where his focus is what do you think he learned most from that experience i uh, he learned how to never give up just keep on hustling and persevere through you know 10 degrees below zero in north idaho um, and people you know slow days and crazy busy days with people that are 
that are, love it, think it's the best they've ever had, and, and then you have somebody else that's complaining because they had a bad day and you just happen to be in their way. So he learned customer service on a, on a big level. He also learned R&D and tasting and, and what works for some people doesn't work for everybody. Not everybody's your customer. But if you make 99% of, the, of your customers happy, they come back over and over and over and, and rave about you. Are your kids doing any other businesses that they've started or are they all staying? Yeah, they're all, family? all the stuff we're talking about, Frontier, Finity Fresh, Lampac, all those things are all part of what our, our kids are doing. My older daughters are putting... They're working on a, a, a breakfast concept now where they're, they're producing their own food for it. That's about their own eggs, dairy, and everything else for it. And it's, uh, it's called Hen House, and that'll be like just a, a great breakfast place and a kind of a, a local joint that everybody that would want to have a, a great breakfast would come to. Uh, that's one of them. And then my daughter, she's, uh, she's, they have a, a landscaping and construction business, and they do different things with that. And uh, But, yeah, everybody's... We're, we're always constantly working together towards all the businesses, and, and uh, we, we spend a lot of time together trying to really focus on what makes sense and what doesn't, and, and then work on uh, helping everybody in that season. Uh, that's the other part is, is some seasons are busier than others, and uh, barbecue is kind of like frozen yogurt. You have a really busy season, and then wintertime slows you down. Sounds like you're keeping them real busy. Let's talk about now what you're doing with uh, 52 Fresh. What it is is uh, working with some of the best guys in the world on creating uh, unique, a, a unique dynamic. We're using Russ Finch's idea of producing oranges in Nebraska and then doing where we'll take, we'll take and we'll grow uh, products in the north especially that don't grow here. So, for, for example, number one crop in the United States for fruit is, uh, is bananas. Most of them come from Ecuador. By the time you get them, the yield on those bananas is about 50%. So they pick them, they get them on there, they spray them, they try to get them up to the docks, they get them off the docks, and then they get them up to your store. It's amazing that they've got that efficient at it, but, it's, uh, but we think there's, there's a, it's an energy swap. If you, can, if you can swap the amount of energy it takes to get it from Ecuador to here, and you can grow them locally, but you can precision harvest those suckers where they taste like the very best one you've ever had, that we've got a business model around that that can grow. And that's part of what what Junior's working on too, is, uh, is uh, 52 Fresh, we'll, we'll produce vanilla, which is uh, kind of a fun one, intercropping vanilla and coffee and bananas in one of our deals. Uh, 52 Fresh, the idea is altering the sun or tweaking it so that we can uh, not, not use the normal sun, but have an artificial sun and temperature where we can, we can tweak our production of different products where we can have year-round supply. Kind of like Russ said, he's, he has oranges year-round. And that's, that's not normal, uh, at least for most orange trees. You usually have a season, maybe two. And uh, so we're looking at it with avocados and, uh, and oranges and, and grapes and different products that would normally come from Chile or from other countries and then uh, producing those off-season. Like we don't necessarily want to be the, the, the product that everybody has at the same time. We want to be all the opposite. And 90% of Americans don't eat fresh fruit every day. And so we want to bring that experience of precision harvested, super high quality, high caliber, using geothermal uh, greenhouses to do it, and then placing them throughout the country uh, in specific spots. And then it's a, you know, it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar opportunity um, to grow amazing, better for you products that probably won't even affect the, the industry that's there now. We'll sell so much more. I don't know about you, but you put a candy bar or a really amazing piece of fruit on the table, your kids are going to go to the fruit first. Tastes horrible, they'll go to the candy bar. But, uh, but if you could make, if we could precision harvest it and really make sure that everything is perfect every single time and uh, execute on that, our yields are so much better, it's just an energy swap. So we've been working on that for a while with some of the best guys in, in the world globally uh, to make that kind of a that, uh, 52 weeks of the year you can get You'll know exactly what it tastes like and get it, get it picked within uh, 48 hours or 24 hours, depending on where it's at. And uh, a lot of guys say, hey, well, yeah, we, can, we, we think we can do that with lettuce or other things that are, you know, they're really high value. Like, I get it. My kids only eat so much lettuce. I don't know about you, but not everybody just wants green stuff all the time. Like, but, a, but really good fruit, 
for the masses is part of what we're focusing on. And that'll be, and everything out of that will be, we may not call it certified organic, we might, depends on where the market goes long term, but it will be organic standards and we're using part of our land back products to, to make that work and we're using different water technologies, lighting technologies, um, energy technologies to, to produce it. Not everything works, not everything's scalable, so we're, we're doing a, a bit of R&D or research and development on that now. What about FarmHub? Are these two companies going to work hand-in-hand, or tell us a little bit about Yeah, they will. So FarmHub is a uh, – it's part of the same idea. Uh, we're, we were looking at – we've been working on for a while. Uh, what does it look like for the grocery store of the future when you can you – know, you get everything on a subscription? Uh, your toilet paper to your to your razors uh, get delivered to your door. Uh, I think it's been two years since I've actually had to go get some diapers, which is pretty amazing since I've been in diapers for like 20 years, some years. But now we get dropped off at our door. So that middle of the store is changing uh, a lot. And the, see the grocery store of the future go from 35,000 uh, square foot that it is on average now, or 30, right around there, down to about 7 to 10. And it's going to be the stuff that's hard to get. Like you can't get milk through Amazon very easy uh, or online. Like it just it costs too much. The shipping doesn't make financial sense. It just doesn't make sense. Um, same thing with a lot of fruit. Like by the time you get it, it's going to be horrible. It can be done. And some people do it, but there's a cost to it. So the grocery stores, as you walk in, you have your fruit, you've got your dairy, you've got your your fresh meats that you couldn't get very easily um, otherwise, and then you go your baked goods, and and then you've got you come back out. Well, Pharma basically takes all of those, and we're working on an automated system that you can 24/7 go up to this automated system like a giant vending machine. And, and you're, you're getting fresh eggs or picked that day and fresh milk and, and fresh produce uh, that's really well executed. And that's part of our being vertical since we've since I grew up. Like all my life, we've been working on trying to be vertical. But at the same time, it's really solution-based and timing. We're finally at that point where people are like, I don't need to see a human in order to buy something. And you look at Amazon Go, they've got their new concept where you walk in, grab something, and walk out, and it took it out of your bank account. You know, it's pretty amazing. 7-Eleven, I think they, they did a deal yesterday saying that now you don't have to wait, wait in line anymore. And, and Walmart's doing it. Well, that's part of what FarmHub is. It's along those same lines of, of a, but a smaller, really well-executed, super premium food option that we're not planning on putting in cities. Uh, we're planning on putting it in the suburbs and where people live. And, uh, but the idea is, hey, I'm, hey, honey, I'm on my way home from work. Uh, and she's like, great, stop by and grab some milk bread and diapers well they don't need diapers anymore because they get dropped off but um you know standing in line for 25 to 30 minutes to go get those two things is a little wearing and you know, fighting a parking lot farm up will will be a solution around that so that's another one of our projects it's a it's a long-term deal it's not going to happen immediately but that's really a, my kids will be a big big part of that as well the last thing i wanted to ask you about was the new restaurant you're thinking about doing called full bore or you're participated in somehow uh could you just tell me a little more about it i know we've been texting a little bit about it here and there yeah it's uh so full bore the idea is a a really well executed sandwich place so you look at places like subway where you where you go in it's fast casual and you can put everything you, you want on it and go well it's kind of been the same uh for 30 or 40 years uh and then you look at these kind of high-end foodie type restaurants, like they do a pretty good job, but it's still, it could be done a little better. So a lot of our chefs, some of our board members and some of our friends that we work with in the industry that we sell our beverages to, that we've been talking to, they're like, there's got to be a better way to to do that kind of a concept. So uh, part of the sausage making and and having plants and and doing different cheeses and all the different things we're doing is uh, creating a concept around that. Full bore is uh, along those lines, and, and that goes back to you know, doing something that you know an end user is going to want. Like you can do fancy, super high-end charcuterie and sell it for 50 bucks a pound, but uh, if you can put it on a sandwich and it's meat and you can grab it and go and it tastes good, whether you, you have a beverage with it or, or you're just slamming it and going, that's part of what it is. So the idea is affordable, really tasty, uh, not everything will be vertically integrated, but a lot of it will be. Uh, we'll, we'll produce it as part of the, the Frontier Protein, and then we'll, we'll have that available uh, uh, in the future. So that's, that is a, a project, and that's, that's also a timing deal. We're not sure if this cycle, if it makes sense, or we wait eight years or so, but that's a, that's a project in the works. Yeah, sounds like a pretty cool idea. Before we wrap things up, though, I would love for you to tell our listeners one piece of advice or life lesson 
that's had the most impact on Travis Potter? Wow. Uh, I'd say the biggest one is, is I, I kind of run on two speeds, uh, fast and sleep. And, uh, and so uh, it's easy to get ahead of yourself. So, you know, really, really measure it out before you do it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, if you need to execute it from a timing perspective, uh, because you're you're gonna you're gonna lose if not, you need to hurry up and get it done. Like work super hard. Don't be afraid to fail. Like actually learn from your failures. Like expect failure. Uh, a lot of people are so afraid to fail at anything or it's uncomfortable that they won't do anything. So they'll always look back and wish they would have done that one thing. That was one thing that I learned long from my grandpa. He always said, you know, if I would have just done that thing, bought that land that's now worth 80 times what it was originally. That I, that I would have more, and I never wanted to be in that position where we didn't you know, that we had to worry about that. Uh, we want to make sure that we're we're doing enough. But you know, for me personally, I'm motivated because we have a big family. And I want to make sure they're all doing things that make sense. But uh, but those, that was always one of the things that I that I learned from it was uh, be willing to fail. Not so hard it kills everybody in in the, in the middle of it, but uh, but learn from it and then do better the next time and then keep on innovating. Like, constantly innovate. Even even if you're ahead of, ahead of yourself, eventually it catches up with you and uh, you're gonna be able to sell that product or, or do that product and then do as much of it with your family as possible. Don't block out your family because your ambitions are in your way, but instead work with them on it and don't be afraid to have a family. A lot of people work really hard, diligent, and then wait till they're until they're in their mid-40s and realize it's time to have a, have a family. You can do both. It's really not hard uh, to do both and be really good at it. That, those are my two main ones. And then the other one was uh, I was on a plane recently, and this is just a, one of those life lessons, like you don't, you don't really get it uh, until later, but I was on a plane with a guy, and he was a doctor, and uh, he was talking about oxygen, and uh, it was kind of interesting. And, uh, and, and he said, you know, in all things – you're either a producer or you're a consumer. If you're a producer, you retain, you, you're, you're bringing in the oxygen and you're going to live longer, and, and, and that doesn't matter what it is. If you're a consumer, everything goes away, and uh, eventually you die early. And uh, so that, that really made me think about everything from animals to politics. Like, there's a lot, a lot to be said in that. I think that's some really good advice, Travis, and I think that's going to wrap things up for us today. I appreciate you being on the show. It was a great time. I learned a lot. I hope our listeners learned a lot. I'm going to continue getting insight from you in the future. I think you provide a lot of great insight in general on what's happening on the organic side, restaurant side, where agriculture is going in the future. If many of you don't know, Travis will be at our conference next week, Wednesday and Thursday, November 28th and 29th. He will be on a panel on what's happening on the horizon in agriculture the 29th that morning. So... If you're there, be ready to see Travis. And that's going to conclude our Farm Tank session today. Have a good weekend and safe Thanksgiving.